Hello, wine family, and welcome to Sci Stories. I'm Armando, and today we got a really special episode for you. Um, we had the pleasure of speaking with Lindsay Hoops from Hoops Vineyards, and she is just such an intelligent woman business owner, and I am more than lucky to have had the chance to speak with her. We talked about regenerative farming, um, the fires that we had in the 17s and, and this past year in 2020, and how they've kind of pivoted their way around that and actually were able to create something really special with those grapes. And we also talked about Save the Family Farms, a great organization looking to help micro wineries be able to have people at their amazing properties. And with that said, I'd love to bring in Lindsay into the conversation and enjoy the conversation. Cheers. Um, we did, I mean, we did interview Rob McMillan relating to Save the Family Farm. Uh, and okay. so of course he, you know, was the founder and also uh, spearheads that industry review every year and you know his summation is incredibly supportive of the save the family farm movement and he's a big personal supporter of the movement because he agrees that there's no way to reasonably or feasibly build a brand without a direct-to-consumer outlet and he believes also that consumers of the millennial generation and and pretty much every generation post boomer so our pipeline of consumers that we need to continue to want to come to Napa are looking for the type of experience that small family farms provide because they're more authentic, they're more right. connected with agriculture, they are the behind the scenes impression of what's going on in Napa and the introduction to all of the actors and the people behind Napa and that's yeah. what customers are moving towards. So they're more socially responsible, they want more yes. connection to the land and the people and that combination is really what underlies the why everyone should care about the Save the Family Farms movement. It's about keeping something alive in Napa that consumers want to um, be a part of. <coughs> oh God, excuse me, I think the no problem. Um, chicken was flucking its feathers. Oh yeah, that's definitely, <laughs> it's ripe for allergens. Yeah, and yeah, I usually try to stock up on local honey before allergy season, but. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're totally right with the whole, I mean, it's kind of nice seeing that, you know, younger people are more cautious about social issues and, you know, that small community feel and, you know, all these different movements and things because it's, think it's going to lead to change overall in the long term. I hope so. I know that, um, you know, one of the members of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco is spearheading a statewide bill to keep the parklets and a lot of the flexible alcohol laws in place after COVID, because I think that we've seen not only that those have helped build community during a very tough time, but they've also helped support business. And people like being outdoors and like having those communal open sort of streets similar to the streets or popular areas in Europe that are pedestrianized and you know they have people wandering around with beverages and food and enjoying the streets as though they are street fairs on a regular basis and that's you know I think that's one of the things I love about Europe I have found the alcohol restrictions in the United States to be 
un unbelievably ridiculous for no real reason. You know, I don't necessarily think that those regulations have a purpose necessarily anymore, and they're definitely restrictive on business. So, um, for that reason, I don't support them. But yeah, yeah, even with Europe's drinking age, I mean, even you know, it just gives. You know, here I feel like sometimes people will start kind of disrespecting it, you know, it's like, oh, I can't wait to be 21. And, you know, out there they respect it more. They live more with the culture of it. And it's kind of a part of them, you know, even kind of going somewhere in that direction. But Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't personally obviously have any empirical data to say whether or not <laughs> they have it better than we do in terms of alcohol abuse and if it starts and when it happens. I mean, that's... That's a, probably a very complicated medical question, but yeah. on the, um, I think just sort of the, Europe definitely has our number on enjoying life, enjoying food and beverage with families and, yeah. you know, really living a lot of these wine lifestyles that I would love to yes. see continue over here. And there are so many strange uh, puritanical or sort of prohibition related laws that control the way alcohol is consumed mm. and they still exist right. here and I feel like culturally we've moved so far from the origins of a lot of those restrictions that yeah. you know if you were to kind of have a rethink of what was the goal then and where mm. do we want to go now I don't think that those are <laughs> yeah, the way to restrict it I mean yeah. you know if you break it down on a really simple level how on earth does it make sense to create a monopoly to distribute alcohol, right? Yeah, right. We wouldn't think that a monopoly is the right way to distribute drugs, right? That's called the black market. <laughs> yeah. So Same why thing. on earth would we have a legalized version of that distributing alcohol? That doesn't keep people from drinking alcohol. It just keeps certain people <laughs> in control yeah, of how alcohol is distributed. But it doesn't mean it's less widely distributed it just means that there are certain people who have undue influence on that entire process and that's yeah, never yeah. a good thing right not in a free market economy you right. know? i mean yeah. I, you've studied economics from usc i mean <laughs> yeah. um you know it's it's funny you either go like full free market or you go full control right but these weird hybrid things in between end up causing yeah. a lot more disproportionate wealth and problems than yeah. one or the other right so totally. i'm not you know, I've studied a lot of economics. I'm not an economics professor by any trade, but no, I, mean, um, I love it. I mean, I mean, you're right. Cause then sometimes I feel like it'll, you, you know, you sell your price and then it goes down the three tier system. And by the time the consumer gets it, you know, it's, you know, at a incredibly higher price that may not sit well with them. And, you know, and it's that whole, just going down the funnel and just making people, you know, get a price cut or whatever they're, well, I think, you know, I think if we're, if we want to talk about small wineries um, and access to the marketplace, that's really where I see the biggest problem. I mean, every product in the world, more or less, is distributed, right? So, right. I mean, you have direct-to-consumer businesses, but a lot of times, most products go through a distributor, then the retail, then the end consumer. Mm -hmm. So, right. that's not unique to wine and it's definitely not going to change necessarily anytime soon <laughs> yeah. but the problem with the way that the three-tier system is set up is that it limits access of small vintners to mm. the general public because you can't right. ship easily wine across state borders 
And that was only recently changed. And even then, there are very cumbersome reporting and tax processes related to alcohol that don't apply to anything else. So you can open up a t-shirt store, send a t-shirt to somebody in Utah, and it doesn't matter. Uh, Alcohol is a felony. So, you know, I mean, there's major restrictions on alcohol that don't exist to other goods. So if you're a small producer and there's a very limited pool of distributors, it doesn't matter if people in Ohio or Colorado want your product and are willing to buy it from you. If you don't have a distributor willing to carry your product, then nobody can buy the product. And Free the Grapes has done a great job at opening up um, direct-to-consumer shipping, so it's becoming more and more possible for small wineries to send grapes over state or send wine over state <laughs> yeah. lines, but um, it's been a really, really long dogged fight, and it's yeah. Im- it's amazing to me. And the customer doesn't understand, so right. the customer will often ask small wineries, "Why can't I get your product in New York? Or why can't I get your product? Uh, why don't I see it in the grocery stores?" And this isn't really a David and Goliath story, but I I can say that obviously it is beneficial for some larger agencies to restrict access because if they are already in the market, then it basically gives them a point of competition and removes Mm -hmm. any further competition. So if customers are more and more excited (laughs) about small brands, the more that the bigger companies can keep the small brands out, the more advantageous it is for them. So unfortunately, with the way that the market is going, it is in their best interest to make it harder for small wineries to get in, and yet small wineries, it's the only way that they will ever survive. And so the consumer should want to ease up those restrictions because they should want access to all of the products that are available in the market. It's not a true marketplace because it is very heavily monopolized by few players. bigger brands. I mean, when you look at the, the wine market in the United States, uh, there are 12 wineries that control 75% of the business, the wine industry. Wow. Yeah. And Napa only mm. produces 0.04% of the world's wine. Yeah, it's hardly anything. Right. So, yeah. why is a flea Yeah, I know, right? It's like the fly on the wall. It's like, yeah, like, what are right? they scared of? Like, yeah, it's... So, you know, I believe that the customer really should have access to the products that they want. Um, especially totally. in a time like COVID when people can't come to Napa, yeah. let us bring Napa to them because Napa is a great wine growing region and the success of Napa benefits all of California. The success yeah. of Napa yes. benefits all of America because Napa is the preeminent wine growing region in the United States as the world sees it. So being able yeah. to support our products and see them all over the United States and beyond benefits all of us because we've yeah. spent a lot of time building the Napa brand to support in general the economies of Americans in the wine industry. So, right. you know, it only That's, really benefits anybody, everybody. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's, I mean, it's true. It should be widely available, especially in times like these. Then I've seen over the time that, I mean, they're starting to loosen up the laws with different cases and, you know, but it's, there's just a lot more that can happen there. 
know, it's a slow uh it's, it's a slow, slow roll it is yeah you know well, how does the free the free the grape right how or how does that work or what are they you know i can't um remember if free the grapes is fully funded by the california wine institute or if it is partially funded by the california wine institute okay. but free the grapes is an organization that is a nonprofit organization aimed mm -hmm. at freeing basically attacking the legal restrictions to accessibility of wine so whether or not that's um, easing distribution laws or easing shipping laws into states um, okay. they basically tackle all the legal hurdles or barriers to wow. shipping and access okay more or less yeah. nice yeah i definitely want to be part of that group too yeah for sure it's, yeah it's funny i don't know if you've heard of um have you heard of blue zones yeah like where people live to be over 100 years old yeah. and stuff like that so this fun fact um blue zones is actually looking to come help work or work with the advances health hospital in saint alita to kind of turn this saint alita or like the upper i think from yountville up north to work and getting it to a blue zone because i know pretty crazy because but i think you know, we have the people, the community, the wine, and just that kind of, you live longer, you share what we have, the land, the food, the animals, and... Well, I think, yeah. I mean, you know, Napa has done some incredibly remarkable things, and they were pioneers of agricultural preservation, um, especially in the wine industry, right? So that was something that dates back to the 1960s. A lot of the things that my father's generation was doing up here, organic farming, existed before it was a term uh, I mean organic yeah. farming you know is centuries old but it's only become a quote-unquote trend or a marketable trend or a certified right. organization in more recent years in 2000 actually <laughs> is when organic certification started to exist but okay, those yeah. those trends were put into place in Napa Valley way before right, right. so we are a trendsetter in healthy eating sustainable farming regenerative farming yes. and I think all of that comes from a very holistic belief in stewarding the land right, and making right. sure it's Farmers. better for future generations but with that in turn i think comes this general respect for uh the better we take care of the food that we put into our bodies the healthier that we are the healthier that the land is right right i mean to totally. me it's a little bit mind-boggling um you know when people ask like is organic a hype you know blah 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 <laughs> And organic certification yeah. is expensive. And so a lot of oh, people who farm sure. organically don't necessarily certify. Those are the pigs. Um, <laughs> you know, don't necessarily certify. But I will, but I think that it would be absolutely insane for anybody to truly believe that you don't benefit somehow from oh. organic farming. Because just think yeah. about it. Plants are porous, right? They pull the water from the earth, they pull the nutrients in the soil, and we all know that, you know, the healthier the soil is, the healthier the, the, healthier the environment, nutrients. the healthier the produce is, right? right yeah. So how can that not <laughs> yeah. mean that if you put crap in the soil, it wouldn't get into your food? Right. I mean, and think about it, like if you're putting you're creating a chemical pool Yikes. in the farm. Yeah. Why would you want to eat anything that grows in the chemical pool? <laughs> yeah, like, that's just absurd to me. So, I mean, I do think that a lot of these things culturally, you know, for napkins um, have been <laughs> beliefs yeah. for a really long time. And it doesn't, it's very interesting. I didn't know that, but I, I would, does not surprise me at all that Napa would be on a target to be a blue zone. You know, people yeah. really believe in being outdoors, taking care of themselves, yes. working hard. 
and and part of that is shepherding mother nature as well so right. yeah no yeah i was i was just yeah i wasn't completely shocked when i when i heard about i mean i was shocked i was like wow like that's awesome but i mean i saw like instant like why they would want to you know help help us get there you know the community and after seeing i think a couple of documentaries of with zach efron and another one on uh, of another one but it's it's kind of it looks exactly like napa you know people are just farming they're living their life they they farm they're with their community maybe have wine at five o'clock and they're just you know living life and you know just getting people to kind of start doing the same thing on a bigger scale would be you know beneficial to anyone yeah should be totally. really cool yeah well we'll be a part of it hopefully yeah, i think you're younger uh, than i am so maybe you will live um, to be 100 <laughs> yeah no hopefully i mean and then there's all like all these different like anti-aging things coming out and god who knows what the future holds but it's exciting for sure, for sure yeah and then so you you've been around for about 40 years I think, that's right 41 yeah and then so it was your dad and your your family kind of came here and, and started the process or so my uh, family moved here. My father was in the military, and that brought him that. to San Francisco. And he decided that he wanted to return to his agricultural roots. He wasn't from California, but he really did want to be in a farming Sick. community, get out of San Francisco. He was definitely not an urban yeah, sounds like me. Personality. Yeah, um, yeah and, he, <laughs> and he also went to USC, so he's a lot like you. Um, oh, my God, I got, yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's a veteran's home here in Napa Valley in, in yeah. Yachtville, and so he'd heard of Napa, not because at the time, you know, we all project back, but Napa wasn't particularly well-known for grapes, and it was only mm-hmm. starting to become recognized as a premier wine-growing region. I mean, that right. was, like, really right around that same time. So my yeah. dad decided to come up here. Um, he had also gone to UC Davis, and so <laughs> he, awesome. you know, understood viticulture said oh well I've got some land now I'll plant some grapes and ended up luckily at the beginning of that meteoric rise in Napa Valley from sort of diverse agricultural community to incredible wine growing region so we've been here basically throughout that entire transition wow yeah, because that was because the the blind tasting was in '76 with Paris. Right? It was with the '76 vintage. Like I can't remember vintage, if it was right. in 1976, but it was certainly right around that time. Yeah. Um, so we yeah, that would have been an awesome time. Yeah, so Great. he basically came here. Napa was still, you know, you let people try your wine out of your truck. People would just yeah. show up on your doorstep. <laughs> I mean, it was a very laid back community. Everybody knew each other. There were no contracts. I, I even up until eight years ago. Everything was very much handshake. You work with your neighbors. All of the farmers know each other. I mean, that's that's been a very recent change. The internet has been a recent change. I yeah, mean, so you know, new. we've been talking about sort of the need for wineries to get up to speed in the digital transformation. And I, when I took over the winery about ten years ago, yeah. my father was mortified that we were going to sell wine, Napa wine. <laughs> on the internet you know yeah. and i was like if i can't yeah. buy it online i won't buy it because i don't you know and that's even especially true with two kids under three i'm like i'm not gonna go search for oh, something God, yeah. that i can't easily find but i'll buy right. i'll search for really special things online and right. want them delivered right so <laughs> i will happily do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh god yeah there's been so many times where i'm just staring at a giant wall of wine and i have no idea what to pick i mean how you know and it's it's just going back to those familiar brands that you know that you've experienced that you know the winemaker the owner and you have these stories and you just want to keep sharing those stories well i think a really interesting i hope 
uh, evolution in the market is that, you know, the wine stores, to your point, are totally intimidating. And, and the stories that are <laughs> known by people are really aligned with some of the families that have been here for just a long time. And so they've built their mm -hmm. reputation, understandably, as the hallmarks of Napa Valley. So, you know, right. they've spent decades building that brand and have recognition. I think what's missing because of COVID and more recent trends is that people aren't going to the restaurants where they used to hear about yeah. a unique bottle of wine. They're not going to their friend's house and hearing, oh, you know what I found yeah, when I was on a trip yeah. in Napa? And so the stories of some of the small brands are having a much harder time being told, spreading through your typical grassroots marketing efforts that are open and accessible to small brands. So I think that the internet being accepted as a way to, to search authentic information, right. because I think there was hesitancy towards, uh, you know, online marketing, you know, that it was mm. not maybe um, <laughs> the way that you want to discover a Napa brand. Right. Now, because it's the only way that you can really connect with brands, big or small, yeah. people are opening their eyes to, oh, wow, like this is actually a great way to learn more about these small farmers because totally. I wouldn't have been able to find them anyway. And they're now creating digital content yeah. to get to know more about them. So hopefully that's going to continue to evolve. And I think somebody would have a great business model who created um, a storytelling platform. Like instead of using yeah. numbers or ratings, which to me is boring. Yeah. It's been oh, done. Yeah. Who like... cares? It's <laughs> right. one man's taste buds and it, has been men largely one man's taste buds tell you who the how two best wines pay. are and how much you should pay for them. Yeah. I think what would be really interesting is for somebody to curate stories, wine stories for people. So if you yeah. like female owned or Hispanic owned or whatever it is, yeah. like young next generation wineries, somebody who's willing to curate that story for you, collate the content and then share that with you. Say, Hey, Armando, you know, I really love, wines that fit into this profile too check these out and creating that sort of digital community of people who are like sharing that. references based on your preferences i think that right. would be a really interesting twist too because huh. i'm so sick of stars and digits and yeah. you know it's like what does 10 mean likes like yeah it's, who cares yeah it's like you like what you like and then it, it's more of the story that what comes along what with connects it. people yeah yeah so it'd be so, fun to exactly. know like who are all the animal lovers in Napa Valley? Who are the regenerative farms? Who yeah. are the, you know, female owned? Who are the, I don't know, you know? Yeah. Who has like, the coolest winery dog? I mean, yeah, <laughs> the coolest winery dog or this coolest property. Who has the coolest the, winery donkey? I'm going to guess and that's the donkey, And the goats. The goats are amazing. <laughs> I hopefully Alex got some pictures of the goats, but... So when uh, so when your, your father came here, did he know what to plant? Did he like ask someone for help or do you know? Kind he of asked that? our neighbors. We okay. did not know what to plant. My father grew up in southeastern Arizona and so he didn't have any experience with wine. I mean, his experience with wine came from having lived around these parts okay. for a little while, yeah. but nowhere near um, a sophisticated experience or understanding of viticulture or enology. So yes. when my dad moved here, we were basically, we moved next door to a woman who was a single mother and oh, she didn't okay. want to take care of a lot of her land, so we bought some extra land, oh, and my nice. father decided to plant it. He went down the road, asked our neighbors. 
what do we plant? And people sort of said, oh, I think that the next big thing is probably going to be grapes, <laughs> yeah. which I know sounds crazy today, but it definitely was not the natural teleology or projection of where Napa was going to go. Wow. And so, you know, unfortunately, there's probably going to need to be a little bit of retooling because Napa is moving into an mm. area of monoculture. Right. You know, right. and at that point, it was extraordinarily diverse. So maybe there's a happy medium. I don't know that you're ever going to convince people that in the most <laughs> valuable wine growing area of the world that they should be planting something else. But um, it's a thought. A it's one. probably good for everybody. <laughs> yeah, that'd be hard. We ripped out an acre. Uh, we ripped out an acre oh. to create our own ecosystem here. Oh, okay, with the garden and then yeah. you have... In the, okay. Yeah, and so, that's, I mean, totally paying off. I mean, you have such a beautiful... And it just adds to your story. I mean, well, I think, in my mind, you know, if you were to ask an appraiser how they value property, it probably doesn't look good on their piece of paper. Mm. But for me, I'm benefiting right. the ecosystem. I'm doing what I promised my family to do, which was steward the land and regeneratively farm it so that it's healthier right. for my children and generations to come and so from my perspective it's a no-brainer i think it's way more valuable as it is i think it's a much more yeah. comprehensive view of the agricultural community so that when visitors come here they can reconnect with wine as an agricultural product you right. know if they yeah. want to go somewhere else to see wine as art if they would like to go somewhere else to see wine as a fancy marble building they can do that if they yeah. want to understand farming as the heart and soul of wine which yes. is what i truly believe it is and also the core of what built napa valley this is where you can come and get that story yes no totally i mean yeah i couldn't have said it better myself i mean it is what it is we're you know i think people came here because they you know they're farmers they wanted to be in the land they wanted to you know create something whether that's wine and just kind of be outside you know, I think a lot of a lot of people that are in the wine industry are very outdoorsy. They love nature, and that comes along with animals and just creation of just being human. And, you totally. know, living in the land. It's pretty cool. So I'm guessing, did he plant Cabernet? We did plant Cabernet, but that wasn't. Um, you know, it's funny. I wouldn't say that that was necessarily. Um, we're in Oakville, and so Oakville right. has always been a better place for growing Cabernet. We were well before the trend of everyone plants Cabernet in Napa because you get, get more for it, you know? Right, yeah, <laughs> God. So I think you're seeing that trend change a little bit. Like, we're probably going to replant the Cabernet that's here. We'll, we'll replant it with something that does better here. Okay, I inherited cool. this vineyard in particular, and, you know, people are trying to put Cabernet everywhere, and I don't necessarily think that that's the best grape for everywhere. Yeah. What, what would Napa. you plant, or what would you want to... Oh. We're kind of actually looking into some of the original varietals, even some that aren't really particularly popular um, anymore, but were popular like Charbonneau and some of the that, things that were totally. part of Napa's tapestry of a history in the wine region. Because, you know, I mean, Napa became really well known actually at the turn of the century in mm. um, internationally, believe it or not, for a number of varietals that are not really grown particularly well. I think the big shift to Cabernet had to do with our likening to Bordeaux and right. Cabernet being the sort of considered king of grapes. And if Napa can grow it well, well then that makes us truly special. And so we've shifted a lot of our production. Mm. But Napa's heritage was actually in a number of different grapes, not Bordeaux grapes, Zinfandel and a number of other things that were actually hmm. what 
Napa was known for at the time. And interestingly enough, you know, I mean, the wine industry came to California because of the missions. And so right. I mean, yeah, the, mission the missions day. were not planting, you know, Cabernet. <laughs> yeah. um, they were, you know, they were Spanish of origin. Um, right. And a lot of them actually were funding themselves through produ production of brandy. So a lot of them were growing mm. brandy grapes. So, you know, I, I think that it would be interesting to tell that story um, here because we already have our Cabernet vineyards in areas that are a little bit better for that. Have you ever made brandy before? Or well, we started in 2017 because of the smoke chain. Okay. So oh, we actually, um, I've been fighting with the insurance companies for a couple of years and we ended up uh, harvesting in 2017. We did all the testing and it showed that the wines were suitable. But through production, the smoke compounds were activated. And so by the time we were about to bottle, we discovered that we had lost essentially all of our production due to smoke tape. Oh my goodness. And so it was, you know, millions of dollars of a problem. And I, you know, my insurance company was not particularly open to helping us. Oh. And at that point we looked into, uh, you know, finding a solution and I couldn't. So I found a master distiller and I said, you know, I love scotch and I love wine and there has to be something that we can do to marry these two concepts. Because brandy, um, well, cognac, I should say, really is, is a better analog. But, you know, cognac is an appellated mm. brandy. Right, right. Right? Yeah. And Napa grows the best grapes in the world. And smoke, mm. um, you know, is a desired profile in quite a few spirits. There aren't any smoked brandies, but there are smoked whiskeys and there are smoked huh. tequilas. That's and true. so why can't we take that concept and marry high-end scotch-like production with <laughs> right. high-end wine production. Huh. Why and not? so that's what we're doing. Wow, that's awesome. That, yeah, I mean, way to just take a, you know, a huge crisis into a, you know, an opportunity and, you know, keep moving it forward. You don't, I mean, I feel like that's, that's all. I don't think there's anyone else doing that out here, at least not that I've heard not of. Not that we know of, yeah. not that we know of, so. <laughs> You know, we're not trying to make hand sanitizer or use it as <laughs> an outlet. Like, we're trying to actually create an entirely new product category. Wow. That's so. that's awesome. How, yeah. And then, wow. Yeah, because I think I, yeah, the, the 17 fires were just a, a nightmare. I mean, and then these past fires, too. And I think during the 17 fires, I was actually working at ETS. Okay. And I remember, the, <laughs> I think that was the first fires we had gotten, you know, in the past, you know, years. And it was... Yeah, it was just having to work there and, you know, everybody trying to, you know, test their grapes. It was just, it's like chaos. I've never seen anything like it. And, yeah. you know, to see that you you, you had smoke taint and you did something else with it. Yep. You know, instead of letting the grapes go to waste because it's it's a tragic, like, I'll, I'll see, I think there's a block over by by where I live and there's still grapes hanging in it. I mean, I see the grapes still hanging and it's like December, January. And it kind of looks like a graveyard, you know, it's, yeah. it's really sad. It's just like, yikes. You know, and it's, yeah, it's do, you, do you have your first release of, of No, so to or? be brandy, you have to age it for two years after you distill it. And okay. so we discovered the smoke taint in May of 2019. We've been fighting the insurance companies since then. Oh, um, but we distilled it, we put it into barrel. And okay. so we have another, you know, probably year. Okay. Then do you use your own wine barrels in this scene, or we've been you... using some of our own wine barrels, some of some cognac barrels. Okay. Huh. What's the difference between those two barrels? 
Well, the the well, the difference in general, I should say, um, between winemaking and making spirits, there are a couple differences right. that I that have really stood out to me as a winemaker. <laughs> okay. So, you know, wine really matters. The quality of the wine is very directly associated with the quality of the grapes. And right. I can't okay. overstate that enough because for people who hear that but don't know a lot about wine or don't know a lot about spirits, it probably mm. just sounds like, okay, yeah, great. Like the quality matters for everything. But what's different about winemaking is you cannot correct problems with the quality of the grapes. So right. you inherit, and that's why smoke taint is such a problem for wine, you inherit the grapes as they are and the flavors as they are. Mm -hmm. So there's very little you can do to make a good wine excellent. You can make a good wine better, you can make good grapes better, but you're never going to make a purse out of a sow's ear, right? I mean, this right. is never gonna happen. Whereas most spirits are actually made from very inexpensive grain. You know, they don't care about the quality of the corn or the wheat or whatever. Some people market slight derivations of better quality barley, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But in general, mm -hmm. they're using stuff that people wouldn't even make beer out of, huh. right? And they right. make a beer, a mash, and then they distill it. Yeah. Because the flavor of a distillate comes from the barrel aging afterwards. Huh. Whereas okay. in wine, the flavor comes from the wine, Right, and it comes from the barrel. The barrel, right. In spirits, that's not the case. The other really big distinction in my yeah. mind <clears throat> is that wine is a living product, right? So it's not shelf-stable. Mm. And as it ages, it changes. But there are a lot of things that can happen during the production that can affect the quality. So it's almost right. like a fragile egg. You have to handle it very, very carefully throughout the process. The temperature matters because you can it you can basically start fermentations. You can, mold can start to grow. It can spoil in so many different ways. In spirits, it's high proof alcohol. Yeah, nothing's gonna survive. So nothing happens. Yeah. And so the minute that you take that high proof alcohol out, it basically, regardless of what you've distilled, tastes about the same. It only gets its flavor from the barrel, Barrels but you can put the barrels in the dirt. You can put them in hot weather, cool weather, <laughs> and all of that, none of that is going to disrupt what's inside that barrel. Wine is nowhere near the same. So wine is a much okay. more curated aging process than spirits. Now brandy's an interesting hybrid because brandy is not distilled as high proof as vodka or gin. Mm -hmm. um, Brandy actually still is intended to retain the flavor profile. Right. So while you can take out a lot of impurities that you can't take out of a wine, it still tastes very much like wine. So starting with a high-end substrate or high-end base product, wine, wine, in the case right. of brandy, um, is really going to elevate the quality of the product. It matters. Gin, vodka, it doesn't really matter what you put in because you're taking pretty a much everything out. Yeah, a lot of um, so it's an opportunity to put really high quality stuff in, keep that characteristic, and then age it and get more high quality flavors in that process. So really fascinating um, because yeah. it's fun to work with the master distiller too because she sees the spirit side and I bring the wine side. And so we're really approaching our, we're calling it the Napa Yak project. I mean, we're, we're approaching Napa 
from those two sides. You know, we have yeah. a lot of experience in our specific industries. Right, and they're and both together, very complicated. Both very complicated and both really different. Yeah. You know, and I've had people ask me throughout the course of this process, you know, are you, do you think a lot of people will just switch to making brandy? It's not that easy. It's, it's not, different yeah. equipment. It's different. Right. It's a whole different science. Um, it's not that it can't be done. It's just that it's expensive. You lose 85% of your volume. You need the angel a share. different expert. <laughs> well, just in the distillation. Then in the aging, you lose the, the angel share. Yeah, so maybe not the best idea to put it in the sun. <laughs> It'll probably evaporate, but. Well, yeah, it, yeah that too. So, huh. yeah, it's, but it's interesting. I mean, it's very cool to marry those two worlds. Yeah. No, yeah, I took a dis, uh, distilling class in, in Davis, and it's it was just a it was a completely whole different experience in the wine. We were looking at different, you know, evaporation rates and lots of, of graphs, and you know, it was just like we hadn't seen those for wine before. Right. And now it's it's a whole different when you when you introduce like higher alcohols into into the science. Yeah, for sure. Then, or um, what kind of wines do you make now? Or yeah, so we make. Um, I mean. We make a number of different wines. We specialize in Cabernet Sauvignon because that's where most of our vineyards are. This is our newest property, okay. and we don't have a ton of vineyard here. And this is a vineyard that we actually haven't made a wine from yet because we lo uh -huh. we bought it in 2017. We lost that harvest, so 2018 uh -huh. will be our first release. Okay. And then we lost the 2020 harvest. So, oh my goodness! You know, we haven't had a ton of experience on this site, but most of our vineyards are Cabernet. But we have a Syrah, we have Merlot, we have a number of other items. Huh. Did you want to try something? Is that what? Uh, no, I know. I mean, if you're offering, we're, yeah, of course. I mean, we can. No, of course. But no, I just wanted to know what. Maya, Sophie. Welcome back. So we did have a little slight technical issue when we got up and tried these amazing wines. I had the chance to try Hoops Cabernet Sauvignon and it was amazing. Um, you know, the body, the tannins, the acid, the velvetiness, the, the smokiness from the oak was just amazing. So if you can get your hands on it, um, I'd highly recommend it. Check them out on their website, on Hoops Vineyard. Com. You could learn more about Save the Family Farms, and we're also going to be doing a, a future episode um, back with Ron Estate to kind of get a, a new update on kind of where this process is and kind of what we can expect. Um, so we look forward to, to hearing from you and, you know, doing another conversation in the future with Hoops Vineyards to touch base and, um, you know, continue work building awareness for these Save the Family Farms and small family farms and wineries um, that just need to be seen and heard. Um, cheers, until next time. <laughs>